So, as I said, um, we're going to be starting this series uh, in a revelation. And so you can turn to Revelation chapter 1 uh, right off the bat. And we're going to be uh, just going through this first chapter here this morning. Um, I have to say, though, right off the bat, that whenever I hear of a speaker uh, opening up and he's going to tell me that he's going to unpack sort of the mysteries of Revelation, I have to be honest with you, that I get extremely nervous. Uh, I tend to get very timid when a guy comes up and tells me that he's going to tell me what Revelation means. Just because there's so much in Revelation um, that is hard to unpack, hard to decipher. And uh, sometimes I th also think that these speakers, when they come up and say, I'm going to tell you the mysteries of the book of Revelation. I almost get this, and then they do their presentation. I sort of have in my mind's eye, you know, those like conspiracy theorists with all the red dots going everywhere. And they're like, this means this and this and that. That's why Putin is the Antichrist, right? It's like some weird thing like that, where they try and prove to you this certain thing means this thing, so this is what this means. And um, that just kind of makes me nervous. Um, and, and, and I think sometimes these speakers that go into Revelation um, are sort of looked at as like torchbearers. You know, they're, they're going through all of these bowels of apocalyptic scripture, and they're going to enlighten us with all these vast uncovered truths and all this kind of stuff. And that's why I kind of get nervous, <laughs> because I think a lot of times uh, I think they're a little bit off base. Um, but it also leads me to ask the question, why do we have revelation in the first place? What's what's the point of this book? And right off the bat, I want to sort of dispel this notion that revelation is the book of revelation is not about predicting the future. Like, I think a lot of times we think about it just as future events. This is what's going to happen in the future. And so we can go to this book and we can know what's going to happen in the future. Well, I, I want to say that I don't think that's why we have this book. It's not included in our canon so that we can predict the future. Um, as you know, the Apostle John, the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he's referred to in the Gospel of John, he's the writer of this book. He um, uh, is, was, or excuse me, before he wrote this book, he was the pastor at Ephesus. So the church that uh, Paul started, uh, in which he wrote the book uh, Ephesians. But since that time, he's been exiled to an island called Patmos. Look at Revelation 1 and look at verse 9. He says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and are the king kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we know here also that he receives this amazing prophetic vision of the risen Lord and he shows him all of these things. Look at verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So he has this vision, and Jesus there is the risen Lord is telling him, you see these things? I want you to write them down and put them in an epistle and send them to these churches. And so, uh, literally, 
I think we sort of tend to pounce on the end of that sort of command where Jesus says these things which, which, um, which are to come, um, where does he say that? Oh, he says that later. Um, which are to come. He, he tells him to write down all of these things and we sort of pounce on this notion of, you know, uh, end times explanation. On, uh, I want to figure out what the end times are going to look like. So I'm going to study this book because obviously this book is here for predicting the future, right? Well, I don't think that's why it's here. But I think that's why we expect it to be there. Because I think we, there's sort of like this innate sense in us, and I, I'm guilty of this too, that we want to know what's going to happen in the future. That if I, if I only knew what was going to happen, I wouldn't be worried. I wouldn't be fearful. Because if I knew it was going to happen, there'd be nothing to fear. And so we like that this book seemingly gives us a sense of control. That we can know what's going to happen so we can control our emotions in the present because we don't have to worry. And I think in a way it's good to do that. But I think that's also why uh, we're so pursuant of this idea of knowing the future. That's why like mediums exist and why fortune tellers still exist because People are just so curious about knowing the future. I think that's also why books like Revelation are studied a lot of times, uh, and other books like Ezekiel, and books like Zechariah, and books like Daniel, because they sort of, uh, I sort of think of it like these books give us like a glimpse behind the curtain of God's sovereignty, right? It's like he's giving us a little peek, like here's what's going to happen, and, and we just zero in, focus in on this idea that we can know what's going to happen, and, I, and we don't ever turn away from this idea of knowing the future. And I think that kind of leads us into this, these, these two sort of realms. I, I think readers of Revelation often fall into two camps, right? One of them is the, the dogmatic camp. So they say that this is what's going to happen, and I know it because I can prove it, because I connected the dots of Scripture, and Putin is the Antichrist, and Israel is going to be attacked by this country. Or something like that. Or you have the super dreadful people who are like, I have no idea what I'm reading. I'm reading about seals and horses and books being opened and all these sorts of plagues. And so I'm confused. I have no idea what's going to happen or what it's going to look like. So you have a dogmatic crowd and a really dreadful crowd. And I think that's led to Revelation sort of being ignored. I have to, I don't remember, I have to raise my hand. You don't have to if you don't want to, but... I don't remember the last time I studied Revelation other than a guy getting up and giving me a lesson like that. I haven't studied what this book means, and that's to my own detriment, I think. I think we sometimes sometimes ignore it. Um, but I think folks in both of those camps, either the dogmatic crowd or the dreadful crowd, have missed the point of what Revelation is. And yes, there's... Definitely some prophetic words, some apocalyptic language. But I was thinking, this revelation in your Bible is not meant to make you a spiritual Nostradamus. It's not there to get you to be able to predict what's going to happen. Nor is it sort of like a secret code that you have to sort of, you know, go all Sherlock Holmes and try and figure out what it means. That's not what this book is. Actually, I think really clearly the intent of Revelation is the first five words of Revelation. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is. It's a revelation of the risen Lord. It's a it's sort of revelation. That means laying bare, exposing, or unveiling. 
is an unveiling of the King, Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. It's sort of Jesus, that Revelation gives us Jesus in high, high contrast. That's what this book does. Super vivid displays of just the fullness of all of God's glory, all of God's might, all of God's authority. And very clearly, this is for our comfort. This isn't for our prediction. This isn't for our stress. This isn't trying to make us dreadful. This is a book of comfort, or at least it should be. Look at what John says. John uh, writes in verse 3, chapter 1, 3, he says, Blessed is he that readeth. Happy is the one that reads this book, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And I think what would happen if we, if we kind of stepped back and we looked at Revelation as a letter, I think a lot of our grid of how we interpret Revelation would change because that's what it is. It's a letter. It's an epistle to churches, to seven churches. Paul is writing here, as he, uh, go back to verse 11, to those churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Sardis, and Laodicea. He's writing this letter for their benefit, for their comfort. So we know that, okay, so Paul is, or excuse me, John is exiled to Patmos. It was believed, history tells us, that he was exiled around the year A.D. 95, which is during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. Now, Domitian is sort of a successor to his brother Titus and also a successor to his father, uh, uh, Vespasian. And we know that Domitian, though, was a very, very vicious, very authoritative ruler. He was sort of an emperor of Rome that was trying to bring all the authority back to the emperor. So he sort of marginalized the Senate. The Senate has no real power. His word is like dogma. His word is authoritative. It's absolute rule. He has all control. What he says goes. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. He sort of set himself up as uh, almost like a deity almost like a god, and he was viewed as whatever his word is, it's divine, it's authoritative, and you have to follow it. And also we know from history um, that in the latter years of Domitian's reign, he really heavily persecuted the Christians and the Jews during this time. He sort of followed, not in sort of the crazy footsteps of Nero, uh, not quite as crazy as that, but he was uh, definitely persecuting Christians, uh, putting them to death, banishing them, as he does John here. And so, um, if you think about it from that perspective now, it's been 60 years, it's been 60 years since Jesus' ascension we believe, around 33 AD, so it's now around 95 AD, so it's been over 60 years since Jesus ascended. So we have generations growing up now, generations of first century Christians growing up under severe persecution. Just they're growing up in a world where what they believe has pushed them to the outside, to the outcast. They are being hunted for what they believe and what their family has believed. And so this apostle, this apostle, Apostle John now, is writing this book, I think, very clearly for the fact that despite all that's going on in their world, a world of persecution, he's wanting them to know that Domitian, he doesn't rule the universe. God does. That, that despite all these things that you see, the persecution that you're enduring, I have seen the risen King Christ. He's the one that's still ruling the universe, not this Domitian guy. I've seen it. I've seen him. 
And this is for their comfort. And I think, how relevant is that to us? That we have a, a world that is so conflicted and discombobulated with people on the left and the right trying to tell us what to believe and what to say and what to know. And we have, this book, I think, is so relevant for us that despite whatever goes on in Washington, King Christ is still on his throne. No matter what, no matter who's there, no matter who's making some legislation pass, King Christ is the one who's ruling and reigning. He is the lone sovereign. And I think that's why this book is comforting, because it gives us a complete view of who Jesus is. So very quickly, two quick things I want to point out this morning. Two, I think, comforting truths that the Apostle John mentions here in this first chapter. And so in verses 5 and 6, I think we see um, the comfort of salvation, the comfort of salvation. Look what John says. Well, jump back to verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he starts out this letter, this letter of peace and grace and comfort to these uh, Asia Minor Christians by saying that the, the God, the, the Jesus who washes us, the Jesus who saved you is the Alpha and the Omega of your salvation. Look at verse 8. He, this Jesus says to him, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. So he's saying, me, the risen Lord, that Jesus, he is the Alpha and Omega of your whole salvation. He's the beginning and the ending of all of our deliverance, all of our forgiveness. He clears the way for us to be saved, and he also finishes all the terms for our salvation. He makes the way, and he, he finishes the way. Look at Hebrews, or I'll just read it really quickly. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3 says this, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus... King Christ, the author and the finisher, the Alpha and Omega of our faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is Jesus, the author and the finisher. Another way of saying the beginning and the ending, the Alpha and Omega of our faith, our entire faith is Jesus Christ, King Christ. And so right here, right at the beginning of Revelation, we have an unveiling, so to speak, of sort of the culmination of your entire Bible. Your whole Bible is pointing to this. The revelation of Jesus Christ isn't just in 21 chapters of Revelation. It's in 66 books of your whole Bible. 
That's what your whole Bible is pointing to. It's pointing to King Christ, uh, uh, the person to whom every knee is going to bow at the end of days, to whom everyone is going to recognize as the king. And some are going to be damned forever into hell, and some are going to be ushered into glory. But everyone is going to recognize that King Christ is the sovereign Lord of the whole universe. This is what your whole Bible has been pointing to. It all goes back to him. But also this author and this finisher, this Alpha and Omega of our faith, he, he didn't leave the end for us to determine. I, I think about this all the time, that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say, okay, now you do the rest. He didn't say, okay, that was, that was pretty good. That was 99%. You got the other 1%. It's on you. What did he say on the cross? He says, it is finished. You don't have to do any other sort of secret uh, mystical thing in order to, to have salvation. It is yours right now, right now, forever. He's the author and the finisher of that. He didn't leave part of the righteousness for you to uh, uh, claim, for you to win. He finished that righteousness for you. He authored the way for it and he finished its uh, whole completion for you. The law maker becomes the law keeper for us, the law breakers. That's what Jesus did. That's what King Christ did. He obeyed the full extent of God's law on your behalf. He didn't go part of the way. He went the full way. As it says in Philippians chapter 2, right? Where it says that he was obedient even unto death. Even the death of the cross. That was your cross. That was my cross. This is what Jesus was obedient to. He was the one that made the demand that led to the cross. He made the demand that, uh, that demanded for perfect, complete righteousness, 24-7, 100% holiness. And he was also the one that lived up to it. He was the alpha and the omega of our salvation. This is your King Christ. So in God's recipe of salvation, it doesn't require the least smidgen of your own ingredients. It doesn't require the least little ounce of your own offerings. It, it, it's not as if he's asking for some little special nugget of your righteousness in order to call you saved. He is saying that I have finished salvation. Believe in it right now. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that the one who was made sin for us, he knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of ourselves? No. The righteousness that's 95% there? No. The, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus did for us. This is the, this is the King Christ that we have on our side. There's no room in the salvation of your soul for your righteous works. That's why, Jesus, that's why it says here in Revelation 1.5 that unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is the scandal of your salvation. That, that the sinner's ransom, your ransom, my ransom, was paid for by the king's own blood. More than that, it was blood that we drew. We, we drew it on the cross, and the blood that he spilled is the blood that covers our sins. 
the blood that washes us, as it says, that washes us from our sins in his own blood. Or uh, I'm going to read Revelation 7:14, which says, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood that washes you white as snow, that purifies you with the righteousness of God, not your own, not your made-up righteousness, not your pretend righteousness, not the righteousness that you get by checking off boxes, but the righteousness that is given to you in the grace of belief. This is King Christ. He is Lord of your salvation. He's Alpha and Omega of your whole faith, the author and the finisher of it. That's, for me, that's an enormous comfort. And I think that's what John is trying to comfort them in uh, right here. But secondly, quickly, not only we have the comfort of salvation, we also have here in these verses the comfort of sovereignty. Look at verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. That word Almighty is a very significant word, I think. I don't think he's, I don't think John is using it by accident. I don't think he's just saying, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good description of God. I think he's using it very intentionally because the word um, in the Greek actually means sort of the one who holds sway over all things. <laughs> I love that picture. That's who King Christ is. He's not just ruler over this little portion and this little. He's the one who has sway over all things. He's the ruler of all. He is the Almighty. Yes, they may have been feeling the pressure of Domitian, these Christians. They may have been feeling that persecution and that vitriol and that violence against them. And here is John. Reminding and comforting of the fact that Domitian, he has might, yes, but it is limited. You have the Almighty, the one who has sway over all things, all times, all peoples, all places on your side. This is the comfort of sovereignty. It's the risen Lord, the risen Lord who is still on the throne. And this is who John sees. Look at verse 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book. And send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. So he's given this instruction to write. And then, remarkably, he turns. And he turns to sort of see who this voice is behind him. And then he's given this magnificent vision of who this voice is. Look at verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. 
And he had at his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. So here's John. He's given this enormous, amazing vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he very clearly is appearing as our judge. That's what it kind of means there in verse 13 when it says that he had a garment down to the foot. That's sort of reminiscent of both a priest and a judge. So it could be one or the other. But then we know by further description where it says that he was girt about the paps, about the chest. He had sort of a sash over his chest. That was of gold, which was sort of um, uh, emblematic of one who had magisterial sort of judging power. And this is who Jesus is appearing as. He is our judge. This is King Christ. And I think, you know, we could spend a lot more time, uh, if we had more time, sort of delving into all of these little... uh, words here where his head and hairs were white like wool and all these things and his feet were were as brass and all of these different images right all these different these different uh, descriptors of this vision we could maybe try and connect the dots like what the brass means and all those sorts of things but i don't think that would comfort you because look at what happens verse 17 and when i saw him i fell at his feet as dead And he laid his right hand upon me. The comfort doesn't come from knowing what these images mean. It comes from this touch of the risen Lord. The risen Lord touches John. And he says, fear not. This is the second time. I think this is really interesting. This is the second time that the Apostle John has seen the glorified, revealed, unveiled glory of Jesus Christ. If you remember, I'm going to turn back. This is Matthew chapter 17. So John takes uh, a couple of his disciples. He takes James and John and he takes Peter. And he goes up to this mount. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration, right? He's given, these three are sort of the inner circle of John's disciples. And he gives them a sort of a pre-vision, a a, a pre-unveiling of his own glory. Look, uh, I'm going to read verse, this is Matthew 17 verse 5. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. This is the second time that John has been comforted with the fact that King Christ is the sovereign. (laughs) And he touches him here. He touches him in Revelation chapter 1. And he basically is saying, fear not. I think this verse, Revelation 1.17, is sort of like a metaphor for the rest of the book. You're going to see some crazy stuff. There's lots of things that are going to happen. There's lots of things that you're not going to understand. But fear not. Don't be afraid. I am King Christ. I am the sovereign one over all things. I hold sway over all things. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid. Fear not. It's almost as if I think God is saying to John, and he's also reaching out and saying to me, and maybe to you as well, 
don't be afraid. I got this. <laughs> I have this. Don't, don't be afraid. And this, I think, this unveiling of King Christ as ruling and reigning over all of our times, this is what is for our comfort. The, the Jesus who was slain is also the Jesus who is sovereign. And the grace and the peace that this letter is giving to us isn't in knowing what all these you know, figures and imagery and illustrations mean. It comes from knowing the one who knows what's going to happen. It doesn't come from knowing what's going to happen. It comes from knowing the one who does, the one who controls what's going to happen, the one who has all of the world uh, in, his, in the palm of his hand. The one who is the king. It comes from knowing the one who has ordained everything in its time and is sovereign over all of our times. And that's what this, I think, letter is getting us to believe and to trust in. The God, the King Christ who is sovereign. Psalm 31, 15 says, My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemy and from them that persecute me. My times, my time is in the hands of this Lord and Savior, my King. So I think, to sum this up, Revelation does not give us a secret formula to decode the future. Putin may be the Antichrist. I don't think he is, but I don't think you can prove it from Scripture that he is. I don't think that we can know which countries are going to make this move and, oh, Next is coming that. I don't think that's what Revelation is for. It's giving us a language. It's giving us a vivid imagery of the Jesus who has ultimate victory and comprehensive control. He has sway over all things in all times. Turn to the end of, your, uh, of the book. Look at uh, Revelation 22. Because we, here we see that, though, that title of Jesus, of King Christ, repeated again. Revelation 22, verse 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to uh, his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This is the theme of the book. This is the theme, I think, of this whole book of Revelation, yes, of your whole Bible, but specifically here in Revelation. Jesus won. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Jesus won. And he, now he's inviting you to sort of share in his victory. And he's comforting us with the fact that we don't need to know all the sequence of events. We don't have to know and be made privy to the intricacies of what's going to happen and when. We don't have to know the future. We just have to know the one who controls the future. I almost think that, that Jesus is singing with Bob Marley. <laughs> Don't worry about a thing. Because every little thing is going to be all right. <laughs> because I have made it all right. Not because you can know this. Because I have made it. I've put every little thing in its specific order. Because I'm sovereign and I hold sway over all things. That's what comforts us. So Revelation shouldn't make us stressed, shouldn't make us dreadful, fearful, should actually make us comforted and encouraged because it's as if Jesus is saying to us, be still and know that I am God. You're not God. I'm God. 
Be still and know that I am God and I'm still enthroned on the throne of the universe. You don't have to fear. You don't have to know what's going to happen. I have already determined what's going to happen because I am Alpha and Omega over all of your times and all of your days. And God is never going to abdicate this throne. (laughs) He's never going to uh, leave this throne. He's never going to relinquish his sovereignty. He is sovereign ruler over all of the world, all of the universe. This is what the Apostle John is telling us. He's writing this letter to Christians who were fearful of the days. (laughs) I don't know about you, But sometimes I could get fearful of the days. That's why I don't watch the news. (laughs) Actually, I just wrote an essay on that for one of my seminary classes. Why the 24-hour news is killing us. (laughs) I think that if we were to take a step back, (laughs) it's almost as if Jesus is saying in this book, Hey, don't worry about the universe. I'll take care of that. (laughs) Don't be stressed about that. Don't be stressed about... Who is what and what the signs are and what the 666 means. I am your king. I am your savior. I am your sovereign. I am King Christ. I am on your side. Be still and know me. I think that's what Revelation tells us. I think that's why we can be comforted this morning. Let's pray really quick and then we'll be dismissed.